Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a very special conversation with Francis McDormand and Joel Cohen. This conversation was hosted by Commonweal's Eric Karpolis. Welcome to Commonweal. I'm Oren Slawsberg. I'm a new member of the Commonweal team. I've been here for six months, which is basically a comma in 40 years history of Commonweal. Um, the chief strategy officers, and there are many board members and staff members and former staff members and former volunteers from Commonweal here. Actually, um, if you are on the staff at Commonweal or a board member or have been a Commonweal board member or staff member, could you stand up for a second? <laughs> staff member to volunteers. These are the people that make Commonweal happen. There are 13 programs here at Commonweal. I'm the director of the EDGES program, which is a program that explores the intersection of the arts, contemplative practice, cognitive science, and education. And what I'd like to do now is to introduce Michael Lerner, who's the founder of Commonweal, and can tell you a few words about where we are. Thank you, Warren, and welcome to you all. I just want to start by um, a brief word of thanks to Francis and Joel for coming and, and being with us here. It's just a tremendous gift that you both bring to the community, and to Eric for making this possible and conducting the conversation. So thank you all for, for this wonderful event. Um, how many of you? Uh, is, for how many of you is this your first time at Commonweal? Let me just see. So quite a few. So, um, <laughs> so I'll say a few words about Commonweal. Um, almost 40 years ago, uh, I was walking on the Bolinas Mesa and I looked out at this old RCA transmitter facility and was given um, an image of the possibility that we might create a place devoted to healing ourselves and healing the earth. And um, here we are, 40 years later, still working on healing ourselves and healing the earth. And we work on that in four uh, domains of work. We work in healing, we work in learning, we work in caring for the earth, and we work in the struggle for justice. And in those four domains, we have a dozen to 15, depending on how you count, different programs. So I'll just mention a few of the major ones just to give you a flavor. Uh, the uh, Commonweal Cancer Help Program, week-long retreats for cancer patients, is almost 30 years old. We've conducted 176 week-long retreats, and it's transformed many lives. Um, uh, Rachel Naomi Remen's Institute for the Study of Health and Illness has a program called The Healer's Art for Medical Students that is in, I think, 70 medical schools around the world, including half of all American medical schools. Um, the Collaborative on he Health and the Environment is an environmental health science dialogue community. It's international. It has about 5,000 partners, scientists and healthcare professionals, thinking about the role of the environment in the epidemics that we would live with in our time. Uh, the Commonweal Garden and Regenerative Design Institute, many of you know Penny Stark and James, uh, James Stark, Penny Livingston Stark and James Stark, 
runs a wonderful permaculture training center. So as you can see, these are very diverse programs, but what holds them all together is a commitment to being a community of service and a sense that somehow by uh, being here together in this small coastal community, uh, we become more than the sum of our parts, that there's something about uh, coming together in community to do service work that um, gives us strength to help and support each other. So uh, that's a brief sense of Commonweal. Um, you can become part of our community in many, many ways, but perhaps the simplest entry point is just signing up for the newsletter for the new school, and we'll tell you about what's coming up here, and you can keep showing up and discovering, exploring your way into different ways of being involved with Commonweal. Finally, I'll just say that um, all new school events are free, and um, we truly welcome your contributions. Uh, it is uh, an effort uh, to bring things like this to life, and so uh, there are envelopes on your chairs, and there are donation boxes, and if you can contribute uh, what you can afford, uh, you'll keep events like this coming to our community. So thank you all for being here, and I'll turn it back over to Oren. Just to add one thing is actually tonight you can contribute more than you usually can because there's a special gift tonight that all the donations that are made tonight will be matched. So anything that you will contribute today will be doubled. The new school is completely supported by donations. And if you're interested, there's a box up here. You can put the envelopes in. And if you're interested in contributing by credit card, we can do it downstairs. So with that, I think I will turn it over to Eric Karpolis, who is a Bolinas resident, a local artist, a local writer, and most important, one of our Commonweal board members. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Good. Um, to begin, you had on your seat also a blank piece of paper. We are going to do some questions after we have a conversation. Instead of having people come up to the mic, we'd like you to write your questions on a piece of paper, if you have them, and then pass them to the center aisle. And then, in about half an hour or so, Kira Epstein, the director of the new school, will come and collect them from the rows, hand them to me, and I will kind of go through them as I best can. Okay? Great. So Michael was, um, as always, speaking about uh, the community. And uh, Commonweal represents a certain part of the West Marin community that is always uh, searching and soul-searching and working on new programs and trying to create a better environment. And I think uh, there are ways in which Joel and Fran have uh, expanded our community in the way that other people move into this community and want to participate and give something back. There are other levels in which community building is part of what they do on their own, in their own professional lives. And that will also integrate. So I just wanted to give a little bit of a context of how they come to be here and this afternoon, because they, I believe, have uh, been supportive of Commonweal and interested in the larger 
the Linus community and the larger uh, community that we represent at Commonweal uh, online and with all of our programs. So, um, welcome, Fran and Joel. <laughs> this is an opportunity to, uh, for us to have a dialogue, which is something that we do in life anyway. We are always kind of talking things. We're old friends. Uh, so there's a casualness to this that uh, uh, becomes a little bit awkward in front of an audience. <laughs> but part of what I, w I thought we would begin with, uh, the, the framework for talking today, we're going to talk about collaboration. And I am a creative artist who works on my own. When I'm a painter, I work in my studio, close the door, I operate in a very private realm. Uh, and when I write, essentially, I do the same kind of thing. Uh, I don't... I, I think about who sees my work, and I think about who the audience is for what I write. Uh, but essentially, mine is a solitary life as an artist. My, the bigger life, I'm a very social person. And I get involved in things. I know people. I have networks of friends. And I have friends from first grade that I still keep in touch with, and I have these friends and those friends. Uh, so my presence, my character is a very engaged one on a social level when I'm not working. I like to have those two separate parts. You guys represent different aspects of that in yourselves, and also the same. I think you both have extremely strong internal lives, and yet your professional lives are the opposite, where you're completely involved with other people. And yet your personalities are different. So that, Fran, you tend to be very outgoing like I do. And Joel, you tend to be a little bit more reserved and internal, also like I am. So there are these different sides. And I just thought, in terms of what happens to you in your own work, when you work with others, do you feel that that sociability is something that uh, draws you into collaboration? And Joel, you, who have a very, very essential collaboration with your brother, uh, yet do, how does that, soci your non-sociability or your, your, your preference to step back rather than to step forward uh, impact upon your collaborating <coughs> with others? Uh, well, it's true. Um... I have to say my brother is even more non-social than I am. <laughs> um, he's, uh, but, but that is a, uh, well, first of all, it also, you're also right that making movies is uh, an intensely social and collaborative uh, experience. You can't do them by yourself. The, the only process, the only part of the process um, that's more uh, private in a way is the writing process. Um, and to a certain extent, the editing of the movie, the finishing of the movie. But even that is, is you're interacting with lots of different people. Um, the actual shooting of a movie is just, it's all about being with other people and collaborating with other people. And all of them really are, you know, I've never been big on the whole sort of auteur concept of making movies. That movies are really the sort of sum total of so many people's different work and ideas and, 
and contributions that it's, 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 it, it has to reflect that, and it does reflect that very sort of social community nature of, uh, of making a story. Um, so, and you love that part. And I do love that part, yes. Production. I, I do like that part. I, you know, there are some people, there are directors who say they don't like being on a set, which I find really interesting. <laughs> um, and part of me sort of understands it. Uh, but, do you think that shows in their uh, but, work? But, Does it no, show? I mean, I'm talking about really good directors, you know? I mean, no, I, you know, I don't, it's, it's, that's a bit of a mystery. Mm -hmm. um, and you know there are people who are sort of notoriously, um, yeah, are sort of notoriously unsocial, I guess, who, who do it. I'm kind of, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I've sort of forgot no, what it is. A, I think it's a complicated one because also you wear so many hats. Uh, you know, you are a writer, you are a director, you are an editor, but at the same time, you're, you've become kind of a. Um, you and Ethan have become the head of a family. You work with the same people who are all, you know, who rely upon you for employment. I mean, they do other jobs too, but I mean, they would prefer to work with you because of the environment that you create. And there's something there that I'm not saying that you're not a, that you don't have social skills. I'm just saying that. <laughs> you, no, you can. Yeah. That's that social skills. But you know, it's more like a, it's like a repertory company. It's like the, a better a better I think template or an idea is like a theatrical repertory company where everyone kind of moves through, though they might work with other people, they come back to the same group of people. And Joel, I believe, watching over 35 years, that there is a certain social element to the production of a film that's really fulfilling for you personally, anything. For, no matter how antisocial you may be in other ways, in that way you really come forward. But but um, that it's a it's a company of people that they know. It's there's not really the actors are the only people that change, and a lot of them don't change. But it there, it's a group of people that though we don't socialize with them that much other times when we're together making a film or when they're together making a film. It's been happening with the same group of people really for thirty almost thirty five years. And whereas I freelance more, though I work with that company, I, I work with uh, other companies in film and in theater. And generally, my uh, uh, I usually bring one, at least one person back from each situation. They might not last forever, you know, in the larger life story, but right, I usually bring at least one. And I introduce him to a lot of people. That's true. <laughs> but from your point of view, that is something that you do, is you tend to seek out people actively. Yeah, except when I don't. And that's what's interesting, because when I don't, I really don't. I really don't. And I think because, and as other people in this room, why it's really exciting for us to be in this room with a lot of couples, who have, have had the same amount of collaboration privately and personally as well as uh, professionally, is that after that amount of time, you know how often it shifts. It shifts tectonically. And sometimes in your life as a couple, you, uh, you know, end up filling in that gap. So if I want to be private, sometimes you step out a lot more socially than than yeah. you would normally. Yeah, but I, I you know, I think in, in sort of, 
in response to the original question, that there may be, in terms of our different personalities and sort of how we approached a sort of social or communal kind of uh, uh, process when we're working, is um, at least personally, I, I, I think there might be some truth in the fact that I do what I do because it draws me, it, it draws me into a social situation that I might not have sought or been involved in in any other way, left to my own devices, even though making movies is due to my own devices, but that, that it's, 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 it's part of a, what's attractive about it to me, partly, is that it does force you to be in a sort of social communal situation that might be absent from my life or what I do um, if I wasn't involved in that. I think there's probably some truth in that. And also, because over a long period of your career, um, you have gotten to the point now where you make a film every two years or every couple of years, and therefore yeah. when you're not working, you get to, I think, recharge and, and step back a little bit from it, and then you know that it's coming again. And the times where you've had longer breaks yeah. between, I think, are harder in a way for you because that balance is not being, being met. Yeah, that's probably true. They're harder for other reasons too. Yeah. But yeah, but that's one of them, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, let's roll the clock back and let's talk about your first coming together and how these two different personalities came to meet each other and then to begin to decide to work together. But just before that, because I, I, I was t thinking about it, I wanted to put it in context a little bit before that first meeting because, you know, uh, just thinking about, as sometimes we do, wondering, and when asked by younger couples, how do you, you know, end up being together for so long successfully? I think one of the main reasons that we were attracted to each other as friends and as a couple and as partner, partners in many ways, is that we came, we have very, we have shared values. We were. We come from similar backgrounds, though seemingly very different. He was, comes from a very middle-class background, two academic parents, mother mostly part-time, worked part-time and then full-times a lot of the time when she was raising her family. Uh, I come from a working-class background, working-class professionals. My father was a minister. Uh, my mother worked part-time as a receptionist and then a nurse. Both our mothers went back to school later in life and became professionals. Um, he was raised Orthodox Jew, uh, as an Orthodox Jew. His mother kept a kosher kitchen up until he was around 12 and had shrimp and said, that's it, kind of. <laughs> and then I, and I, once I left home at 18, kind of uh, left my Christian upbringing behind and we kind of decided not to pursue a religious, specifically religious life. But when we met, we were really, we were at the beginning. He was 27 and I was 24. It was my, first, my second job out of drama school. It was his first film. And we had, we had nothing and we had everything. So it was an extraordinary time to start a partnership in so many ways because we were what we, all we really had was ambition to do what we wanted to do, and we've basically spent the last 35 years assuming that we were going to get to do that and making sure the other one got to too. 
That was ba that's basically the foundation of it. So when you know when somebody would say to me, oh, I uh, like early early days, like a friend from college would say, no, I can't come into New York and spend the night with you because I don't sleep away from my husband. I've never spent a night away from my husband. Like, oh my God, what does what does that life mean? I didn't know what that life meant, right? It was like that was just a given that you would be, it was kind of like a whaling ship. So you, um, you went to Jamaica to do, was it Jamaica? Trinidad. Trinidad, to work on Derek Walker. Yeah, mm hmm and that was your, I think, your first? My first job out of drama school, I went to, drama, uh, went to after seven years of school, so drama school at Yale School of Drama, I was uh, doing work studying the library my last year. Derek Walcott, who's a Jamaican uh, poet and playwright, had just- St. Lucian, I think he is. Yeah, St. Lucian. St. Lucian. Yeah. And he had just gotten a MacArthur grant and was uh, wanted to produce a play that he'd written with a Trinidadian uh, kind of, a theater company in Trinidad and was looking to bring two American actors down. Uh, a classmate of mine who's from Barbados said, would you like to go to Trinidad? And I said, absolutely, where is it? <laughs> we got out the atlas, she showed me. I auditioned, I got accepted. So my first job, I went straight to Trinidad from New Haven, Connecticut for three months. And then when I got back, soon after, well, after working at Rishu of London, where I was a cashier, had a little doily on my head and a long polyester skirt. I auditioned for Blood Simple, because, and I f had found out about it from my roommate, uh, Vitaltus Ruginis, and Holly Hunter had both auditioned. So then you, you take it from there, when I... <laughs> then I'll tell you. got the, the job. <laughs> she got the job. I got the job. <laughs> I walk into a room. <laughs> you pick it up at any point. I walk into a room. Uh, so Joel's 27, Ethan's 24, my age. They are chain smokers. In the middle of this table is an ashtray this big. The room, no windows, blue from the smoke. Stubs, like a mountain of stubs. And uh, I hadn't gotten the whole script. I'd only gotten a couple scenes from Blood Simple. Uh, has, who hasn't seen it? Oh my, oh, okay, good, okay, good, a few. Well, required viewing, it's very good. Um, so I, I'd gotten a couple scenes, they asked me to read the scenes, they liked it, it was hard to tell, but here's how you tell. <laughs> And there's somebody else in the room that's worked with them. Here's how you tell if they're interested in what you're doing, whether it's good or bad or funny or not. <laughs> it's like this collective. <laughs> right? And you go. So you learn to judge the different varieties of that sound. But they made that sound. They asked me to come back later in the day to read with the actor that they had cast as the male protagonist in the movie. And I said, what time? They said, two o'clock. I said, no, I can't come at two. No, that's true. She, she, did, she was busy during the callback when we wanted to call her back because she wanted to watch her, her boyfriend who was on a soap opera. Um, it was his first yeah, job. First job, and I thought, well, okay, that's cool. Loyal. Uh, yeah, I, 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 that, that's a... I thought that was, that was good. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
But you told me. You told me I got the job because I said no. Well, yes, that and because you read the part well. <laughs> so I read the script, and the, I, you know, at drama school, we were not taught, we didn't take any courses in film. I was taught, I was trained to be a classical theater actor, which you very soon find out when you get out of drama school with, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of debt, you cannot do classical theater and pay your loans back. So uh, I didn't know how to read a film script. And there is a shortcut that film scripts have called uh, point of view, POV. And I just kept seeing POV, POV. <laughs> and it's not a heavy dialogue script, blood simple. <laughs> There's a lot of pavs. <laughs> so I kept skipping the pavs and all the stage directions because that's what I was taught to do in a play, just skip the stage. There wasn't much there except a lot, but I did read things like she takes a knife and stabs the man's hand to the window. So I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so I didn't really know how to read it, but I did come back and. He d yes, he did eventually come back. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Joel. Sorry. Uh, no. It's collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, when you and your brother were making movies when you were young with Super 8 camera, did you have then a sense of uh, an audience? Were these being made for yourselves? Were they being made for your friends? Um, well, I, mostly for ourselves. Um, you know, we would uh, basically the process was we would see a movie on TV, like The Naked Prey with Cornell Wilde, and then the next day we would make it in Super 8. Um, and then we got um, a little bit more sophisticated and decided we could write our own stories. So we would do things like Henry Kissinger, Man on the Go. <laughs> yeah, my brother, with the briefcase, we go out to the airport and, and film him doing shuttle diplomacy. He, anything kind of looks like Henry Kissinger, yeah. so it's Actually, good. Actually, even at that age. Um, <laughs> and your mom always drove the getaway car. Well, she did in one movie. Mm -hmm. yes. How did the idea of a camera, I mean, how did you get a camera? And was this something that you and Ethan came to by discussion? It was something that came up? Was there a camera around? Did you feel no, we, like? No, we, 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 you know, we. Uh, From the I beginning, you each wanted age. to do this. You didn't have to convince. Um, well, I think I started doing it, and Ethan is a little bit younger than I am. And at that age, you know, the age difference was um, more palpable. I was, you know, I don't know, 12, and he was 9, or he, I was 13, and he was 10. But um, uh, no, we, you know, we, I would mow lawns, get. We'd make some, I'd make some money and I bought a Super 8 movie camera and... Uh, you bought the camera? Yeah, I bought the camera and, and uh, we, other friends of ours were involved in it. It was a sort of, you know, a group of people who were involved in it. Um, and we'd go out and we made lots of, lots of uh, uh, movies just with... Uh, we understood the concept of cutting and even parallel editing where two stories are happening sort of simultaneously and intercut. Intellectually, we understood it, but practically, we didn't understand about actually cutting the film. So we would shoot the scene and then run over to the other place <laughs> and shoot that little thing. And 
then run back to the first place and shoot a little bit more, and we put it together that way. And the, the, the benefit of that is that you then give the film to the drugstore, and when it comes back two days later, you have a fully finished movie. Um, you should but, try that now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, there so are no drugstores left. There's no, there's like no processing, it's true. Um, but then I, you know, I, uh, you know, I can, we continue to do that through part of high school and, um, and then I went to a film school at, M, uh, at NYU as an undergraduate, so. And Ethan, his brother studied philosophy at Princeton, dropped out for a year to write a play, kind of, not just to write a play, but they wrote a play. So he was already uh, yeah. writing, he was doing writing theater, which he does also now, mm -hmm. separately. You're listening to a conversation with Francis McDormand and Joel Cohen. And the film, actual aspect, you said you started shooting. Did you know how to use a camera? Did you teach yourself how to uh, use a camera? Yeah, well, these were not very complicated machines. Well, they for were, a 12-year-old, yeah, I mean, but, yeah, I wouldn't but have been yeah, we that. taught ourselves how to do that, and eventually, we actually have a friend um, who was very sort of influential in how we sort of started to make features, Sam Raimi, who, um, who made much more sophisticated Super 8 films than we did. When did you meet Sam? I met him when he was 19 and I was in my early 20s and working as an assistant editor. After I got out of film school, I started working as an assistant to an editor in New York who did uh, mostly splatter movies. They were very low budget exploitation movies with lots of blood. Um, and most of them were, some of them, the most interesting one was the one that I met Sam on. Um, but they were done on a sort of interesting model where they were, they were in a sense, in the late 70s and early 80s, they were the first sort of commercially viable independent films that were being made were these genre movies. Um, and, and Edna, the woman that I was working for, um, cut a lot of them. And that's how I, that's how I met Sam. And, and she was, by the way, a very, very influential and a great mentor because she, she really taught me more about how you actually make movies than I learned in film school. She was a very generous person and, and also not, um, she wasn't worried about her position. She sort of brought me in as an assistant and then when she realized I could cut, she moved another machine in and had me cut, the, cut with her. And, um, and that's a great way to sort of learn how you actually direct movies is by having to put them together. And one of the things that, about editing, that as a actor in film, because for me, that's the kind of director and filmmaker that is the most satisfying to work with, is someone who already understands how it's gonna be edited. So I think it's an editor's medium. I don't think it's a director or actor or, uh, or cinema, cinematographer's medium. I think it's an editor's medium. And if, if I know that the director has that vision of how it's going to be edited, then I know what I'm serving. And it's much easier to serve someone who already knows what the, what the edit is going to be. But also this, the, what he brought up about the splatter movies. It was really interesting what happened with a lot of, especially with Blood Simple, it was kind of the best, 
it wasn't just a splatter movie, and it wasn't just ex uh, exploitative, but it was a hor it kind of had a lot of the horror movie tropes. And they, it was a lot, much smarter than that and much funnier than a lot of them, but it was a great way for them to get their foot in the door. And it was uh, a way for them to kind of exploit the exploitation films that were being made then. And I know that when I, uh, for, when I read the script, there was a scene where the character, it didn't say that she was unclothed, but it intimated that she was unclothed. And I think after I got the job and I read it and I was, like, I was sitting at home thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I'm gonna have to be naked. Or I'm, I, I'm gonna be na have to be naked? And I remember calling Joel and saying, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I'm, I, I, talk to me about it, talk to me about this. And he said, oh no, 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 don't worry about it. We're not selling this movie on sex, we're selling this on violence. <laughs> So, um, Joel worked with um, Edith? Edna. Edna, Edna, right. Edna. And was there a comparable mentor, somebody who, in your uh, coming up the, the ladder, somebody who really uh, represented to, to you somebody that you recognized that you could learn from and who uh, you could develop a, a relationship of trust and uh, a long-term learning? Okay. There was a little, I mean, you know, three years isn't much, but in our three years when we met, it was pretty big. Because uh, Joel was really, uh, you know, just, just uh, he was uh, intellectually a lot more sophisticated than, than I was, but also a lot more just, just in his subject, he was a lot more sophisticatedly uh, direct and and more. You do, I mean, I'd never seen it foreign films. I'd never seen a Japanese film. I, he introduced me to Kurosawa. He he introduced me to most of the world of film. I didn't grow up seeing film. You know, my favorite film was I, when I first showed him my two favorite films. I thought that was a deal breaker. It almost was a deal breaker, <laughs> wasn't it? What was it? Ryan's daughter. <laughs> Okay, not, not and Wicker Man. Yeah, Wicker Man. The first, Wicker the original. Yeah. That helped. Yeah. That helped balance. Uh, yeah. A little bit, because uh -huh. but it was a B movie, uh -huh. so I was I was on I was on pretty thin ice, but in terms, but also in terms of the business of of being an actor, because like I said, I wasn't trained in the business of being an actor. I wasn't trained in the art of being. A, I had been allowed to be an think of myself as an artist. And what I learned from Joel is that an actor can be too fat, too thin, too tall, too short, too dark, too light. That there, you, I couldn't do everything. And that, I, that, it, that he helped me balance the rejection of being an actor and the, in the business of being an actor and really helped me with that. He also subsidized the American theater by you know, helping me pay my rent when I did theater because he had a, he had a better job. Well, you, um, you certainly brought in, in your acting career uh, an enormous uh, substance that is parallel, I think, to what Joel brings to film. I mean, most people don't know that Fran is, is a devoted stage actor. They tend to see, whenever she's referred to, she's the Academy Award winning or whatever it is. But um, she is a remarkable stage presence, and um, she has a great commitment to live theater. And she's worked with several experimental theater groups. She continues to. I don't know how many of you 
read Ben Brantley's review of her work with the Worcester Group uh, earlier this year. Uh, so it's an ongoing commitment. She works both in film and in, on the stage. And one of the things that I found, I think, singular in your acting career on stage is that you played both Stella and Blanche in Streetcar. <laughs> and I think that that's a very rare quality in an actor to well, have the empathy mm -hmm. to find both of those roles that are so completely different. And it's interesting to me, when thinking about talking, that you know, Stella and Blanche are siblings. And I was thinking about Joel and Ethan as siblings. And I know you have siblings too, but it, you have a creative life that creates um, character that is very unusual and very deep. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about what you found in that experience uh, of Stella and Stella Blanche. Blanche. Well, it's, 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 you could say, I'm glad that you find that inspiring. We've talked a lot about that. It's also, could, you could also see it as very uninspired. I just keep going back to the same place. I've also done Three Sisters three times. I've played all three sisters. I think that there's also, a, I'd like to know your opinion about this, because you lived through me playing all those different parts. <laughs> But what was interesting for me about Stella and Blanche, I'm not suited to Blanche. I wasn't well cast as Blanche. I was really well cast as Stella, I think. But, but I was you given to play Blanche. I was given the opportunity. I, my, I was flattered. I, my, my, I, was, I was flattered because someone said to me, as they often do to actresses at different stages in their life, "Isn't it time you did your Blanche?" Which is kind of this weird theater thing where it's time you did your Hedda or your this or your that. And I soon found after that, actually, that kind of punctuated something for me. I did do my Blanche. I, I was very fortunate to do it. I did it at the Gate Theater in Dublin with an extraordinary Irish cast, uh, with a wonderful British uh, director. It wasn't a very successful production, but it wasn't a horrible production, and I wasn't a very good Blanche, but I loved the, getting the opportunity to do it. I beg to differ, go ahead. They loved it. It was fabulous. <laughs> Mike and Eric came to see it, they loved it. And it was also, it, it was a part of our talk, well, you didn't love it, but we had a great conversation <laughs> about it in terms of the whole arc of what, you know, what I've been doing. But I think that there's also something for me about returning to plays that is really satisfying because I, it's greedy too. I don't get done with them. Mm -hmm. And in the commercial world of theater now, there's a sense where you, it's like getting, it's, it's, you're for hire all the time. Actors are often just for hire in commercial theater. So you get, a, you get hired, a group of people you've never worked with before or in early days as you get older it changes, but you get three weeks of rehearsal, two weeks of preview, you put it up, the director leaves and it's about the box office. That's why I'm drawn to doing plays over and over, to get to, to reinvestigate them with different groups of people, but also to work with companies like the Worcester Group, where I, we developed something for two years. The Shaker Project I worked on, we've been developing for two years, and it just got its first production you know, a couple months ago. So that's part of why I like to, so the, the Stella and the Blanche was interesting because it was how many years apart? A lot. 10 maybe. Yeah. Probably yeah. The, the, the age of uh, the two characters. I mean, they were about well, 10 years apart. I think what I found, and um, you know, I did love the performance, uh, not because it was you, but because you made a new Blanche, you made me see Blanche in a different way. And I think a, as a writer, 
the experience of having a character that's become like a stock character. I mean, Vivian Lee essentially immortalized that role, even though the original, who was Jessica, Jessica Tandy, uh, also, you know, we don't know that performance as well as we know Vivian Lee. But you were able to bring something to that role that was not necessarily what one thinks of as a Francis McDormand role. You know, you, you become, and so I thought maybe that would more if we could talk a little bit about how in Marge Gunderson, you had a text that was a certain unknown character. You got to create a new character. But I think in the creation of it, you brought something to it that perhaps Joel and Ethan hadn't expected. And that that's a sign of, um, of your ability to inhabit a character, that you are a character actress. I'm a character actor. Yeah. Yep, that's what I am. And, and I got to be one. I mean, I, I actually crafted it that way. I think early on, and this is something else I was talking about in the way that, that you know, Joel mentored me through this. Well, both Joel and Ethan mentored me through this. They, the way they write is, is theatrical. Their scripts are theatrical. They're done. It's not a blueprint. We're often films, scripts that I get for films are these kind of large moments kind of connected by very, very uh, undeveloped bridges. And the actors and the, and the designers are brought in to make it a whole. Or some directors go into production with a much more, uh, what, 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 um, you know, on the fly, more than they do. But they, so the working with them, they create, they write characters. So the characters I was playing in their films were full-fledged character roles. And then when I was auditioning for things, we would talk about the, the difference between um, all the things that I wasn't, basically. I was always told I wasn't all these things. I wasn't pretty enough, I was a little left of center. All these things, the feedback I would get from casting agents, and I decided, well, they need one of those. <laughs> I'll just put all those things together and become that, which is a character actor. Really. So if, if I wasn't pretty enough to be the lead, then it was like, okay, then I'm going to back her up. I'll be the friend. And so that, that was kind of what helped me develop my actor's ego and my, act, my character actor ego. After you went out and bought falsies. And I had some, some nice, uh, yeah, some props. I had some good props. <laughs> I'll tell my falsies story later if you want it. Okay. But I, but I think in terms of Stella and Blanche, what did you see in that? Well, I, I yes, you're a natural Stella and, a, and, and someone you wouldn't expect to cast as Blanche. But that, I agree, that's what made that production, that particular production interesting. And it's but why the play is great, because it's, it's elastic in the sense that um, when somebody like you plays that part, a whole other sort of dimension of the play gets revealed that isn't revealed if it's played by the, per, the sort of more wilting flower, the delicate flower that's sort of more commonly associated with Blanche. Yeah, it can withstand some, it. Yeah, it, it can withstand it, but it also sort of reveals other things. That's, but you know, that's an essential, obvious, essential difference between um, movies and theater, and gets back to what you were saying before in movies, where sometimes it's absolutely not about the ability of the actor in movies necessarily, and I was casting the best actor. They can't be too short, too, too tall, too old, too young, too whatever it happens to be. And you're, you're, it's a different thing. It has to sort of 
make the essential point or it has to be, as you were saying earlier, you're always looking, especially in people with significant, you know, not in smaller parts in movies, but in substantial parts in movies, um, you may have written the part, but what you really want is somebody who's going to completely surprise you by what they do with it and in it. And change your mind. And change your mind, or just reveal something about it that they brought to it that's exclusively their province and not yours at all. And so you let's know? go to Marge. Well, so, right, Marge is a good example of, yeah, of that, or, yes. Was, was there a, a point at which, while Fran was creating the performance, that you all of a sudden Well, you know what's very interesting about Fargo is, um, and this is, I don't think I've ever said this, but it's very true. The first scene we shot with Fran, um, I don't really know what she was gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you never really do. I mean, you, you, Did you also leave wasn't telling me rehearse very much. <laughs> Well, an important uh, but, but, thing to know, because a lot of people assume that we collaborate on scripts that we work on together, and that is not the case at all. I never see them until I've been told I have a part, and then I read it, and I show up. I don't, I'm not asked my opinion. I'm not asked to, you know, nor would I presume. Then, maybe now, it's a little different. <laughs> I might presume a little more. But it, specifically with that, they told me they had written me a part. I got the script. It was a pregnant cop. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> I thought, because at that point, you know, psycho killer was what I was looking for. I was looking for something. Um, yes, that's true. You were not thrilled with Prospect <laughs> playing that. Um, but it is also true that when we, when we, we shot the first take of the first scene, and I saw you do that, I went, okay. What That's, was it? We were in the, in the uh, car dealership. Right. The back room of the car dealership where you were He's fleeing the interview. interview. He's fleeing the interview. No, no, it wasn't Before. That. It was before, when, when you're, the first time you come. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I thought, Okay, that's really interesting, that's great. I mean, I, honestly, it, and it was something that I, it was totally unexpected and it was, yeah. Um, but that's, by the way, that's, that's happened to me, yes, yeah. Um, and there's somebody else in the room here I had a very similar experience with, also in another yeah. movie. Um, and it, it was very much the same thing, where you, you know the person's work, but you know, when they start actually doing the part, right from the beginning you go, Okay, this is really, really interesting. Goes so, to another yeah. level. But uh, it was also interesting it, uh, in, in the, uh, you know, just the connection between Marge and Blanche, but it, I want to go back to Fargo because it, it's, it's really ripe for us. Stella and Blanche? No, Blanche and Marge Gunderson. Okay. Because at that point, I mean, really why I got to do Blanche at the Gate Theater in Dublin was because of, because of Fargo. And uh, because of what, whatever, whatever renown that brought me as an actor, I was able to kind of uh, do a lot of things that I wouldn't have been asked to do before. And one of them was Blanche at the, the Gate Theater in Dublin. But I knew that from the minute I walked out in my white linen suit in, you know, in the back alley of New Orleans, if that audience expected Marge Gunderson to show up, I was <laughs> But if they were willing for Marge Gunderson to 
to prove to them she could be Blanche, then it was going to be an interesting evening. And I think the, the, the big clue for me about doing that play in Dublin at all was one day during rehearsal in the rented house that we were, we were in, there was a toilet problem and a plumber came over. And in the 45 minutes that he was there, he entertained us more with the stories he told than I had been in years. And I thought, oh my God, if the plumber... <laughs> If the whole audience is full of these guys, <laughs> I'm, I better step up my game. <laughs> and it was true. It was a great... Uh, Irish audiences in the theater are some of the best. Let's talk about a little bit this idea of what uh, a certain amount of celebrity has afforded you. In both of your careers, um, you have consistently, I think, represented... Uh, integrity as artists and taking things that have meaning for you and not just doing what is expected in the marketplace. And, you know, when you were young, you stuck to your guns and you said, these are the kinds of movies I want to make, these are the kinds of films I want to be involved in, these are the projects. You made choices. And then years go by and all of a sudden, you're in the mainstream. You guys have both built very gradually over time a career in which uh, you begin to earn the respect and the, um, the ability to do what you want to do. And from people, what I really want to talk about is, and I, something that we often talk about and was part of our original <coughs> friendship was seeing ourselves as being marginal. Marginal was a big word when we first met about how- That we embraced. That we embraced, that we saw ourselves as not being part of the mainstream cultural life in New York, not being part of it uh, in, in the way that we had relationships. And I think it's fascinating that how the margin has moved to the center, almost without, certainly not without, int without intention, but somehow all of a sudden you have arrived and you're, you know, you're standing on the, the um, stage with millions, I guess billions of people who watch these award ceremonies and things like that. And you know, you're just, all of a sudden, you're at the heart of it. And I think it has not changed at all who you are. And I think that in itself is amazing. And I think also bringing it back to the fact about what it means to be in Bellinas and how a life in Bellinas is, you're part of a community of people who are extremely accomplished and extremely thoughtful and who are following their respective creative lives or whatever they're doing, but they're not interested in being like everybody else. No, it's a, there is a, as we all know, it is a choice to live on a separate tectonic plate. <laughs> it is a choice for insurance purposes alone. But, but I also think what a lot of people in this room understand and what we've, what's all been a big part of our conversation as friends and, and as couples and as family is that you keep each other there too. You, it's not about holding back or not uh, allowing someone to fulfill their, their potential or ambition, but it's also, we, there, it is a yearly question. Could you do it? Could you do it? <laughs> Remember when we bought that, that first television set and you had a migraine and took to your bed? 
you know, because we just spent a lot of money on a television, that's still a really alive for us. That's really alive. And the, so the, can you, what does it mean? You know, what does it mean when Joel turned to me and said, I guess we're in the mainstream now? And we both were like, <laughs> it was a really, really, uh, you know, our, our stomachs dropped. Because what's that mean? It's not like we were trying to be different. It was like what I said, if you're told long enough you're not something and you become that, you don't expect, you know, you just keep doing that. You don't expect it to become any, become something else. Well, part of aging, part of being yeah, a different you generation. Can't, you can't fight it, yeah. yeah, right. But also what you do, I think, without intentionally doing it in setting that uh, standard, is that you become a, a role model. You know, you have been around long enough and done enough now that younger people coming up think this is this can be done because you did it, and that I think that's invaluable, and somehow um, that that's the debt that you pay, and that that people uh, respect that, and that that's a that's a critical part of it. Thanks. I think that's true. I think debt does have to be paid. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that was from the from <clears throat> my point of view, or I think my brother's point of view. When we were starting out, there was never any intention of being. Um, we we never sort of looked at ourselves as as okay, we're uh, independent filmmakers, or we're this, or we're that. We were just we would happily have embraced the mainstream had it been offered to us earlier. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, we were sort of also not willing to do anything we didn't want to do. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so we went, okay, well, well that'll, then we'll land wherever we land. And, and, you know, and then you do, right, if you stick around long enough, it's a, you're, you're right, it's, it's, it's a function of getting older. You stick around long enough, you may find yourself in the mainstream, and then you find yourself an old fart. <laughs> You know? just an okay, old now I'm one of the ultra cockers in the business. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah, it just happens. But I, I, uh, I, I think it was sort of we were sort of blissfully kind of not caring where we landed on that spectrum, one way or the other, when and we started and as we sort of went through the process. I mean, you know, quite honestly, there's so much luck involved in this whole thing. And one of the lucky things that happened to us is that when we made our first movie, if someone had offered to finance that first movie and then said, but we get to control this and this and this and this, we would have said, great, and taken the money and done it. But what happened was nobody was willing to, <laughs> luckily, no one was willing to finance our first movie. We had to find the financing ourselves. And because of that, we enjoyed complete creative control over the process and got used to it. And so we said, okay, well, on the second, why should we give up the prerogatives that we had on the first one? And so in a sense that misfortune and the thing that made it difficult at first was actually a huge blessing because it, it sort of institutionalized in our own minds a certain way of doing things that we just then said, okay, well, that's how it's gonna happen from here on out. Um, I also th think it, there, there was something about two, two really important practical things about 
both our evolutions, but sp specifically Joel and Ethan's, as in the business of filmmaking, they make sure that nobody loses too much money. You know, they, 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 they see it as a business. It's not just take the money and run and do anything you want with it. There's actually, you have to be responsible to something. And also, practically, we keep, we've kept our overhead really low. We just, that's what I, two things, advice I always give to young uh, people in my profession. Have a skill other than acting, have a skill that you can fall back on because you've got, and know how to not work, because that's what you're gonna be doing most of the time is not working. So you gotta know how to not work and keep your overhead low. Just keep it low. And then you can enjoy, you know. Mm -hmm. You guys, success. however, um, as up on this career that you've built, you have been very consistent about not going out and selling yourselves. Publicity is something very unusually that you do not do that most. Oh, he does. <laughs> no, he does, they do. They do interviews when their films come out, but you know, in general, I mm. think you guys. Uh, they don't sell watches. You don't, <laughs> you, know, you don't do commercials. Well, although you direct commercials, you don't necessarily. Uh, so, but I think also I was gonna ask, I mean, how often have you done something like this where the two of you together <coughs> face an audience? Very infrequently. I, when have we done this before? Once before. We got a free trip to Madrid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm out of here. It was for but, um, uh, the man who wasn't there, and Ethan had something else to do, so we went. No, but that's an interesting story, because um, we didn't actually face an audience. We were going to do a television show to get, that somebody had, so I, I never do oh, television. Oh man, I took the bullet. Yeah, so, so uh, this had been explained to us, but this should be an exception. This was for the man who wasn't there, by the way. We, I, th this is an exception, this, what is this television show? Well, it's sort of like, it's, a, it's like a film scholar, and he talks about the process and making the movie. It's and one of the smartest stuff. shows on television, they yeah, said. The smartest, smartest show. You have to be interview show. Very important. So we drive out to a, uh, we drive out to a studio on the outskirts of Madrid. We go into the studio. As I'm walking in, I hear this roaring laughter of this studio audience. <laughs> And I go in, and there's, it's like some variety show is happening. And the guy who's running the show says, you're on in four minutes. The first thing, it's a movie about a barber. First thing we're gonna do is give you a haircut. <laughs> and I went, I am not. And he's going, and we're on in four minutes. <laughs> and Fran was, oh, you're gonna, <laughs> yeah. Take so, so, so Fran said, I'll, you don't want him going on. <laughs> He's pissed off. He's already pissed off, and he wouldn't be good in this situation. Um, she said, I'll, I'll go on. And I went, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, which she did. It, not a pleasant experience, I'm sure the show was, you know, I was... 
Uh, but we got uh, through. It was yeah. fine. And we got a free yeah. trip to Madrid. So, we, so actually, um, but that's in that the first case, time we, we were face an audience. Yeah, but we were yeah. we were in interviews together for the first time. Like we were with journalists for the first time in our professional career together because he's usually with Ethan. So it's not like he doesn't know how to do an interview with someone, but their relationship obviously obviously is a lot different than ours. And it it it, uh, it was interesting. I mean, it was. At the, at, as you can see, it's it's easier for me than it is for Joel, but in that it was interesting to to be in that situation. Thank you. Well, for me. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation with Francis McDormand and Joel Cohen. We're gonna uh, do some of the audience. This was like passing the offering plate. I love that. <laughs> and let's start with one that says. Um, has either of you ever been involved in a project you knew was just not working, and how did you respond to that? Been involved in a project that you knew was just not, well. That's I, hard since I, you I, generate I, most yeah, of the winter men. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't say I, I have, I think the way the question is uh, intended, I, I, in terms of the whole, I mean, I've been in projects that haven't worked. I've been involved in things, movies that haven't worked, but in the middle of the process, you're not looking at it that way. You can't. You can't. Um, you may be dealing with a scene that isn't working or individual sort of components of it that you go, this isn't working, but that's what the job is. Then you, 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 you the, the, the process of trying to figure out how to make it work is what you do, um, and, and you deal with it. But in terms of the overall thing, no. I think that um, it's um, it's really a case where you're in the middle of something and you don't think about it that way. You're just thinking about how do I make this the best thing that possibly can be. Now, when you get done with it or when you get close to done with it, you may realize, well, this is just is not working. But um, that happens. Um, there's also, and we've talked about this a lot, there's a... Uh, there is a, a way you can, your feelings about whether or not something is working when you're making a movie are actually graphable and they're almost always identical in my experience, whether the movie ends up being something worthwhile and something you look back and say, well, that worked or that didn't work, doesn't matter. What happens is that when you're shooting something, it generally seems to be the case that everything, you're getting what you need to get. Um, it's very exciting when you're watching the the dailies that come back every day. Um, that part of the process is almost, for psychological reasons and just social reasons and all kinds of other reasons, that's, everything's going great. Kind of like childbirth, we presume. The, the, you're anesthetized yeah. against the pain well, and it's and just all. It's also, it's a whole, you know, the way you're sort of taking in what's happening on a day, in these sort of, this fragmentary nature is. Uh, but you and Ethan are so, deeply invested from long before you get yes. to the dailies, that yes. you have conceived it, you have storyboarded yeah. it, you yeah. have, you know, so that you yeah. really, among directors, are probably... Yeah, we have a good idea of what so we're going for and, and all you, the rest you of seem it. To say what, you seem to know what's not working at a much earlier stage, well, you know, before, hopefully. Yeah, sometimes, but then what, then what happens is that after you put together the first cut of the movie, it really is true, that's when you want to shoot yourself, always. <laughs> it's, um, 
in, without exception, you look at the first cut, and, and you, I've said this before, you just want to get in a warm bath and open your veins and your Okay, blood. okay. Yeah. Um, and then after that, you slowly, slowly, as you work on the cut of a movie, you slowly start to bring back some semblance of, well, maybe this can work, whether it's the case or not. What was the maximum um, you gave me when I, because I've just started producing things, and you told me it's never as bad. Yeah, well, there's an old truism in the business: never as good as the dailies is never as bad as the first cut. It's very, very true. And so after having made 16 films. When you do your seventeenth, the first cut will still. It'll no matter still how be much, this, yes. You just, it's yeah. That's so an does awful that help thing. mitigate the, uh, the? You know it, but you, you know you know that it's going to be the case, but it doesn't seem to help much. It's, uh, <laughs> um, but it's there is that very common. I, again, this is sort of tangentially related to the question, but I. Mm -hmm. I the best way to answer. Um, the, I, it, I had an experience. I've had many experiences where, but but there's there's a there is something, and I think it's very particular to our generation, because I've seen younger people, where for me it's astounding that they don't have this uh, ethic. Mm -hmm. I was involved in a production of a play, a new play. It was a three character play. Uh, called The Swan, and uh, three days into rehearsal, the other two, I got to rehearsal, and the stage manager met me at the door of the rehearsal room and said, you don't want to go in there. Why? Because Peter and Stanley are quitting. And I was like, why? What? Because, first of all, the, I, that would completely, is anathema the word? Yes. Never would have entered, quitting? You don't, you sign up for something, you see it through to the end. That's just the way I was taught. I, that's the way I was taught as a, a theatrical collaborator, as a person, you just don't quit. So the idea that they were, so throughout the day, as they were, and they, you know, really in the long run, they made the real, the, really the right choice. One of them came back. They both quit, one left forever, the other one came back. But at some point I kept saying, is it me? I'll go. No, no, it's not you. It's it. It's the whole thing. They knew. They could sense. It, but I have a thing in me that just makes me not see it until I look back. Right, don't you think? Yeah. I, I just that's true. I'm push it through. I push it through. I push it through. That's, that's how I do it. Let's um, branch off onto something that you raised, that you are now branching out uh, into production that you have, um, Fran has just finished shooting um, a four-part HBO series based on Elizabeth Stroud's novel called Olive Kittredge. Um, but it's a book that she read, a novel that she read and felt right away that it, it was spoke to her and she opted. Not right away, but. Well. No. Please, tell the story. No, because what's interesting about novels and because Joel, you, he, they've adapted some. Some novels are, can be other things. Some novels need to be left alone. Olive Kitchers is one that should be just left alone. So we'll see. And be, because those fans of the novel aren't necessarily going to love what, what we've done, or nor should it have anything been done with it. But I was, an actress said to me, you want to play this role. And it was kind of like, she threw down the gauntlet. and That was kind of what started it. 
But um, that idea to, to produce, mm -hmm. was that born then? Or is that, that's something you've wanted to do, I think? I think it came, uh, not, not produce, it came out, it was a confluence of many things. It was a confluence of uh, our son leaving, you know, graduating high school and leaving home. I wanted to prepare for this year, this past year. I was, af I was afraid of, of real uh, deep despair. <laughs> and I wanted to like be busy as I think a lot of you understand. So I was setting up these things that were gonna happen, and almost all of them happened at the exact same time, but this was one of them. So it was, producing for me was about forward thinking, trying to think, trying to get parts for myself, uh, generate parts for myself that aren't being written in film and theater for women uh, over a certain age, and uh, also, I'm really, I'm a, what, the one thing I've practiced outside of being an actor is being a housewife. I'm really good at it. And a lot of those skills are really good for producing. <laughs> Won't you say? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say. It's either that or renovate. <laughs> you know about that, yeah. So uh, we have a question that uh, asks you to tell us how you discovered Bellinas. How, do, how we discovered Bellinas? Yes. We, uh, okay. We, uh, we were working a lot in LA um, about 15 years ago, and uh, we go to Scotland a lot, and we saw there was a town up here called Inverness. So we well, went we up originally to Inverness. No, by John Lyons, By John Lyons, yeah. So He's also we came a member up, of the community. We came up there, and we were in Inverness, on this weekend, 4th of July, I can't remember what year it was. Pedro's five, and he's, nine, and, he's gonna uh, be 20, so 15 years ago. And, and, and we were invited to, uh, to uh, uh, a picnic at Mark and Susie's house on the 4th of July about 15, it must have been 15 years ago. We were up at Moncus, so, yeah. we were staying at Moncus. Um, and we were invited to the picnic, and I said, no, I'm not leaving, it's too nice here. Anybody that knows Moncus, it was like, mm -mm, um, no. And he said, oh, come on, Ma. And whew, we lucky came down here, and, and it was even nicer down here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was it. That was it. Um, we, yeah. Somebody asks if you can talk about the difference in collaboration. I think this is for you between theater and film, how you experience the collaborative aspect. It's really, yeah, I know that's me, but help me. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, we, we talked a little bit about that from a sort of, from a collaborative point of view, I don't know how different it really is from a, just there are so many things about the nature of the medium which are very different, like what we were talking about, casting and, and acting in different parts and that sort of thing. I, but you have it's to address it from a process because I don't work yeah. theater. From a process point of view, it's a lot different because they're, in the rehearsal process, an actor gets a lot more, has a lot more power in the process than we do on a, a film unless, unless, the, unless you're a movie star and you're you know, controlling the power in some way, financial, I don't know. I mean, but collaboratively, uh, okay. yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, you've worked with uh, 
somebody like Mike Nichols and D Daniel Sullivan in the theater. Yeah. And you've worked with John Borman. You've worked with great directors, both in theater and in movies. I mean, do you feel that there is some kind of... Yeah, well, for me, there is. The, the, the one thing that, that, that connects everything I do, both, both film and theater, is that I was taught as a theater, in my theater training, to be interested in the dramaturgy of the story and to see how I fit into the dramaturgy. So instead of just reading my scene, say in a movie, my one scene as the girlfriend with no last name to Robert De Niro's main protagonist, instead of looking and going, what's my part and how can I just get through my scene, it's where do I fit in the larger scheme of things. No, I don't need to talk to the director and give me a last name. I'm not gonna make it any different. All I have to make sure is why does that guy need me as a girlfriend? How's that sit in the whole story? So that that also oh that for, for so for me it's dramaturgically. Yeah, and that also ties in with the last question because I think in a way that was something you felt was not working. You know the the experience of making that film that you're talking about. Which one? Uh, with Robert De Niro, the City by Yes, yeah. City by the Sea. Yeah. I think ultimately you felt that somehow. Well, I, that, that ended up being kind of interesting because I was only, I was, I was hired on that job as kind of, not a day player, but I had a very specific amount of time that they could afford, if you know what I mean. They paid me a certain amount of money and I had to work for, I think, six weeks. And then they decided that the, dramaturgically, actually, the story was really in trouble. And they decided that for, they wanted my character to show up kind of down the beach looking so that Robert De Niro's character could look towards her and that was gonna symbolize some kind of hope for his future. It was so hackneyed and stupid, it was just stupid. And it wasn't gonna work. And, and so I basically said, oh, I, I actually, I can't be available. <laughs> Well, there is something, I mean, look, here, here's a big difference which is just there, which is, and I know this even though I don't work in theater, which is that an actor controls their performance to a much greater degree in theater than they, in, in certain respects, mm -hmm. I have to say, because that's an important qualification, um, in theater than they do in film, in certain respects, because there's so much, uh, you know, doing a play in real time from beginning to end, telling the story on stage, you're controlling the rhythm of it, you're controlling the, you know, it's been rehearsed, it's been worked out with the other actors, it's part of a larger production, but the people who are, on, who are actually sort of controlling the unfolding of the experience are the actors who are doing it on stage. That's not at all the case in movies, and becoming less and less so as technology develops in movies. So an example we talk about a lot is, um, well, there's a number of interesting sort of ways in which you can sort of illustrate that. I worked with an actor once who was just his, his default sort of uh, metabolism was very, very slow. And everything was, you know, there was a, Every phrase, in between every phrase, there was a pause. You could drive a herd of elephants through. It was just, you know. And I said to him at one point, you know, <clears throat> if you, I'd been asking him to sort of speed it up. And I said, at a certain point, out of frustration, if you don't speed it up, what you're really doing is you're 
abdicating control of your own performance because you're forcing me to cut away in between these different phrases and to condense the rhythm of the scene. And if you speed it up, then I'll have more options when I'm cutting it, and they'll be friendlier to your time on screen. And that's just a brutal fact. Um, and, and really good and, direction. And, but now what you can do is, is with this same actor, I can speed that time up in between those pauses in ways that weren't possible before by jump cutting it because things in the background would shift. And I, I can do that and make it look like the rhythm of their performance is completely different. And um, it's a technological tool which is just made possible by advances in digital imagery that wasn't there uh, 10 years ago. Um, but just gives more control to me. Um, so I, that goes to the whole nature of the difference between acting in movies and acting on the stage in an obvious way. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a question about improvisation. And I know that you and Ethan famously stick to what you've written and actors who want to kind of even <laughs> skip the word the in a sentence. Uh, are, are told to do it again as it's written. <laughs> well, you know, I actually think that's part kind of a, not entirely true. I, it's, um, in fact, I remember we're doing a scene with Bill Macy where I said Bill Macy was doing some, he was, he was and I, uh, I uh, and then the line, and I said, you know, Bill, that kind of stands in for, you know, you're trying to find the thought, and then do, however you want to do is fine. He said, no, 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 you wrote it, and then I, uh, dot, 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 <laughs> I, uh, dot. So uh, I, I was, okay, I, yeah, if you can figure it out that way, that's great, too. Well, but he works but, with mammoths, so of course he, he wants yes. to do it that way. And he, and he was brilliant at figuring that out, but I, um, Generally speaking, we're all for improvisation as long as it happens in rehearsal. Um, Frank, it's, what about you? I don't like, I don't like. Do I don't, you have the experience where you're working with people, say, in the theater, who all of a sudden want to do something differently one night uh, and try it out? Well, it's interesting because if it, 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 it all, it's kind of the context. Like with the Worcester group, it's a constant, even though it's very rigid, Technically, with the Worcester group, there is a constant elasticity to the performances because there's some technical task that always has to be performed that keeps it live, and I love that. I love that kind of um, kind of ma macro improvisation. But um, I'm not really good at I'm not good at it in film because I'm not a writer. I'm not. I don't. I'm not inherently a, a good writer. Uh, that was what was interesting about working with Robert De Niro. He's a really, really good improvisational actor and does it to keep it alive. And so in scenes with him, if he felt it was getting stale, then he would just start throwing things at me. And that was really interesting. And, you know, but I wasn't good at it. And he, you know, cease and desist pretty fast because like, oh, she's not playing all. So sometimes it's, it, but, but if it's set up that way, I feel if it's set up with a certain amount of that to begin with, I know I can play along, but I'm not very good at it. Okay. Let's, um, let's kind of wrap this up with talking about projects you're working on or future projects you would like to work on. 
Um, you go first. Uh, okay. Well, we're about to start shooting a movie in November. In uh, it's a little hard to describe. It's a uh, it's a movie about that takes place sort of centered around a movie studio in Hollywood, 1950. That's making a movie about the life of Christ. Um, sort of like a Ben-Hur sort of kind of movie is what they're involved it's in. It's called Hail Caesar. Called Hail Caesar. Um, and it it's follows um, a figure who was um, uh, not really this, but in our story is also sort of metaphorically Christ-like, who was a, 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 uh, a character who was a fixer for the studio in the 50s. Um, who would, you know, smooth things over when people involved in the world, the universe of the studio, got into trouble with the law or with, in their personal lives or whatever happened, made sure that the, uh, the public and the press wouldn't find out about it. So he himself was taking on the sins of other people in order to allow uh, people at large to have faith in the sort of, the world of this, this, the universe of this studio. So it's sort of, um, it's a movie about Jesus told metaphorically. <laughs> and that's something, is there something that, for instance, that you've always wanted to make that, uh, you know, you've put off and put off and put off? I mean, I well, it is, this is a movie we had an idea to do many years ago and never thought we would actually write it. And, one of the actors involved in it, George Clooney, kept announcing to the press that it was going to be our next movie for the last 15 years. Um, so we decided just to go ahead and write the thing and do it. Um, just, just a little, I'm going to answer that, but, but in terms of this film, um, every time Joel and Ethan, for the last 30 years, write a new script, and it's kind of public, you know, public, uh, it's made public that they're going to make the film. I have my agent call to see if I have a part in it. <laughs> I learned very early not to ask at home. <laughs> it's easier to get the, the news from somebody else that you have a professional relationship with. I'm still not sure if I have a part in this next one. I'm, 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 I'm hoping. Um, so Before I, you answer that, I will say they have done five films together. And that... Um, six. I had a wiggle on in uh, Miller's Crossing. Oh, right. I didn't have any lines, but I, I got a wig and walked through. But also that um, in doing some reading, I learned that there, are, uh, there were five uh, actresses in the history of uh, the Academy Awards who were nominated for roles for Best Actor directed by their husbands. Hmm. Fran is the one who won among the five. <laughs> but uh, the others were um, uh, an actress named Elizabeth uh, Bregner, a 1935 film that I had never heard of. I didn't know the husband or the actress. But Gina Rollins, um, John Cassavetes. Anybody want to guess the others? Or anyway, Julie Andrews. Her husband uh -huh. for Victor Victoria, and Joanne Woodward for Rachel Rachel. Uh, good company. Very good company. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
both actors and directors. Um, well, uh, we were talking about Olive Kittredge. It's going to be aired on HBO November 2nd and 3rd. I think what they're going to, yeah, it's four hours. Um, that comes up soon. I just finished, just uh, premiered a show with the Worcester Group in New York called, um, help me. Shakers. Yeah, Early Shaker Spirituals. It's, uh, it's a record album interpretation of side A of a 1976 recording of five uh, Shaker women recording songs that had been passed down through oral history, and it's a staged theatrical piece, an hour long. We're hoping, we're restaging it this year in LA for two weeks at the Red Cat, perhaps a week in San Francisco, perhaps a performance in Bellinas, we're working on it, uh, two, a week in Antwerp, and two weeks in Brooklyn. And um, I'm also optioned uh, another nonfiction piece of work by one of our own, Mr. Michael Pollan, and of The Omnivore's Dilemma. And we, uh, my partner and I are working on making that into a fictional work, uh, perhaps with me playing the main character. I will not be having a sex change. Um, and Do you want to talk about um, the Laura Lippin? And yes, and I produced a film based on a Laura Lippmann novel called Every Secret Thing that was premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival this spring and we're looking uh, for a buyer for that to distribute it and uh, have good prospects. And I'm working on a production of Macbeth that we're hopefully gonna be doing in Berkeley within the next year and a half. So I wanna thank you all for coming. I wanna thank Fran and Joel. And I just want to uh, remind you all that we have a matching grant for today for donations, if you could think about these free events and support us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a conversation with Francis McDormand and Joel Cohen, hosted by Eric Karpolis. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O' Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.